I get nervous too when there's too many cops around. <laughs> Even when it was one, I was like, yeah, he's making me nervous. Good morning. Good morning. Okay, so the first thing I think I need to do this morning as we get started is uh, I need to uh, thank Josh for moving the communion in front of my uh, uh, sermon as opposed to behind it like last time. Most of you were here to witness that train wreck as it unfolded. Um, and I was the conductor of the train. That was the sad part about it. I couldn't do anything about it, really. Uh, we did learn, however, that I am not a sports car, so I cannot grab a gear downshift and move that quickly. I'm more like uh, Tyler. I'm more like one of those old bean trucks out there. You've got to, like, push the clutch through the floor pan and, like, you know, grab and stuff, you know, eat, eat, and get it to go. You know what I'm talking about, Larry. You're smiling back there, so. Anyway. Uh, we are going to continue a, uh, our lesson uh, in uh, the conversation between uh, Peter and Jesus. Uh, last time I was here, we were talking about how Satan had uh, requested to sift Peter. Uh, today, we're going to talk about the fact that Jesus, in response to that, then says, Hey, Peter, I'm going to pray for you. Uh, and then the third one will eventually be the fact, well, Peter's response to all this, and we'll talk about that. So uh, last week, we again, we talked about, uh, or two weeks ago, rather, uh, Reese was here last week. So two weeks ago, we talked about the fact that, you know, Pete, or that Satan did change his M.O. from what we can tell scripturally and say, hey, I want a shot at that guy. Everything else that we had known about his tactics up until that point, based upon Peter's writings and upon the book of Job, um, was that he was just kind of a, a wanderer. Um, I don't see Sierra. She was here at some point. So, Scott, for your benefit, um, if we want to articulate it this way, our understanding of Satan was that he was a little bit of a drifter or perhaps a hobo, depending on which version of the White Snake tune you like best. And I know, I know Krista was also involved in that too. So, at any rate, so that is what our understanding was until we read this little, this little short snippet here, where Jesus makes that statement and says, "Hey, P, uh, Peter, uh, Satan, the adversary, has asked to sift you." And I. Yeah, and so then he decides, depending on translation, some has Peter's response, and then it will have Jesus saying, I'm going to pray for you. Some has, I'm going to pray for you, and then Peter's response. I don't know that that really matters, although I think the prayer being the last thing, actually, it's probably better based upon what Peter's response was. Uh, and we'll get to that on the third one. But nonetheless, we're going to talk about this morning the fact that Jeter, uh, that Jesus, uh, not Derek Jeter, but Jesus prays for Peter. Uh, in Luke twenty two thirty two. this is what we read there. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith not fail. And when you have turned back, back, strengthen your brothers. I'll have to apologize also. We were at the ball game yesterday for several hours. And so whatever the sign is, whatever's going on, uh, my voice is not as finely tuned as it normally would be. In my opinion, anyway. Uh, so he says, I'm going to pray for you, Peter, that your faith not fail you. First thing I find curious about this is the fact that Jesus is praying for him. Anyway, at all. Which indicates to me that the decision as to whether or not he's going to get sifted is not going to be Jesus' decision to make. This is a decision that the Father 
is going to make. The father will decide whether or not the adversary gets to take that shot at Peter. Now, Jesus apparently does know what the answer is going to be from the father because he says, when you've returned back to me, you know, so he knows this is going to happen, but he's not the one that's going to make that decision. Jesus is not going to be the one that sets the restrictions and the parameters on Satan uh, as to how he goes about sifting out Peter. The way we see in Job, whenever the parameters were set there, and he said, well, you can do this, but don't do that. You can do this, don't kill him. Those types of parameters. So the reason I think he prays for him first, and this is not one of my main points today, this is kind of an afterthought, was that, hey, the father is going to make the decision, not Jesus, as to whether Satan is going to be granted this request or has made the decision I suppose, as to whether he gets to test him because Jesus is aware that that will happen. The important thing, the points I have today to look at as we examine this topic of why Jesus felt it necessary to pray for Peter is the fact, number one, he knows Peter. Now, last time we talked Peter up very high. And we looked at all the good that he was able to do and accomplish in his ministry, the great things he did for the kingdom, uh, the commission he had from from uh, from Jesus to feed the flock and, and do those things. Uh, but and those are all great things that Peter did, in fact, do. We talked about how he was truly the first apostle to the Gentiles, as opposed to Paul, because he's the one that broke the mold or uh, broke the ice in Acts chapter ten. However. Despite those things, the first reason why I think that Peter or that Jesus decides it's necessary to pray for Peter is because one, Jesus knows Peter. He knows Peter. He handpicked Peter to serve as an apostle. He's been walking the countryside with Peter for three years, and he knows Peter. Now, the first thing I think we need to examine when we talk about knowing Peter is that Peter was a flesh and blood human being. All of the things that we struggle with in our lives as flesh and blood human beings, those are things that he had to struggle with in his life as a flesh and blood uh, human being. There was, for Peter, there would be no whirlwind like with Elijah in uh, 2 Kings 2 verse 11. There's no whirlwind and no chariots of fire or any of those things that's going to take him up and out of this existence, plane of existence into a heavenly plane of existence. So he will not be getting that. Uh, there's also not going to simply be a no more. Like we see in Genesis uh, chapter 524 with Enoch. So Peter's going to have to ride this out. And there is a point where Jesus pulls Peter off to the side. And explains to Peter exactly how he's going to meet his end. I didn't include that this morning. Uh, but it is there if you want to go check that out. Now, it doesn't say what it is. It just says, hey, he pulled him to the side and talked to him and said, hey, you know, this is what's going to ultimately happen. Uh, so he was a flesh and blood person, just like we're flesh and blood people. We can hold him up and esteem him highly. But at the end of the day, he, he has the same issues and struggles uh, that we ourselves uh, have. Now, one of the things that he did struggle with, um, and this is kind of a curious location for this to happen, uh, but in Luke 22, 24 through 26, uh, we see that it was easy for Peter to become entangled in trivial pursuits. 
in Luke 22, 24 through 26, we read there, Now there was also a dispute among them as to which of them should be, the, should be considered the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors. But not so among you. On the contrary, he who, he who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he who governs uh, as he who serves. So shortly after being told by Jesus that, hey, uh, one of you are going to betray me, by the way, uh, they then find themselves debating this topic. So instead of there being like, wait a minute, what is going on? What is Jesus talking about? Somebody's going to betray him. Uh, what does that mean? Who's it going to be? We now find the, the, the apostles that are having this debate amongst themselves as to who's the greatest amongst us as apostles. Doesn't seem like the thing that probably should have been being discussed at that particular point in time. Excuse me just for just a second. We'll see if that keeps it from pulling away from me. Um, it doesn't seem like the greatest thing to be discussing at that particular point in time, but yet here they are. They're human beings. Um, they are in the presence of Christ. And so they have already been told by Jesus. This is kind of partly his fault. Uh, I don't mean to put anything on him that isn't true. But he did tell them in Matthew nineteen twenty eight. So Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me, will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, So there was an anticipation on the part of the apostles that the kingdom is going to come, we're going to get thrones, and we get to judge over the 12 tribes. And so even after being told, hey, these are the events that are going to unfold, somebody's going to betray the Son of Man into into the hands of men. And then initially it was like, ooh, I just wonder who was it? Who's it going to be? Well, now they are debating later, shortly thereafter, um, who's the greatest among them? Who's going to be on the throne closest to where Jesus is sitting? You know, it's kind of a thing. And it's it's something that fleshly people do. We like to, you know, we like to be prominent. We like to have positions of power and authority. We like to feel important. There you go. I mean, this is where they are. And Peter was one of the ones that was caught up in this debate. Right, so, so we see this is uh, this is a very real thing, and also this debate that's going on here is before he's told about. Maybe his position changed slightly after being told about the Satan thing. Maybe not. Uh, also, we see in Acts chapter one, verse six, just to drive this point home just a little bit further. Uh, we read there. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, "Lord." Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So you've got this, these guys that are, you know, their heads even after the death and the burial and the resurrection and all those things. That later on, they're still thinking, okay, well, when's the kingdom getting reestablished? Uh, because we've got these thrones that we're supposed to be sitting on. When, when is this going to happen? And so, at any rate, we see that he is susceptible to this same thing that we're susceptible to. We want to, to feel... Like we're important. We want to have that, that, that level of prestige. Or some type of prestige, I suppose you could say. And Peter wasn't any more immune to that temptation than any of the other, uh, any, any, any of the other 11. 
uh, at that particular point. We also see an issue that arose with Peter where it was uh, easy for him to be swayed by his peers and show bias. In Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 21, we read there, Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him, this is Paul speaking, I withstood him to his faith because he was to be blamed. For, there, for before certain men came from James... He would eat with the Gentiles, but when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. But when I, but when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, and I cut it off right there because we're not going in that whole discourse. The point being is that Paul had to rebuke Peter because Peter being obvious, well, they were both Jews, but Peter in this particular instant had allowed the fact that he was Jew and he was out amongst the Gentiles to change his behavior and modify his behavior. So, hey, he'll he'll sit down and, and he'll eat with the Gentiles. They're having a great time. He'll fellowship with them, all those things. But as soon as some other Jews from from showed up, he, oh, uh, oh, we can't do that no more. Oh, we're going to go here. We're going to have our own little dining area over here amongst the Jews. We're going to get this separation going. So Peter was susceptible to the same things that we see today. I'm sure that all of us at some point in our life have noticed that whenever there's a congregation of folks together, and I don't mean a church congregation, just a collection of folks together, that they're naturally formed, it just kind of breaks apart into groups. And people who are like in manner tend to congregate to each other. People who aren't kind of don't. I mean, you know, it's a natural thing that happens that we can see and experience today. And I've been guilty of it, just like probably everybody else has been guilty of it. So Peter here is guilty of it, and Paul has to rebuke him. What that means is that even though he was Peter, um, he did have... Things that he had to work out. There were issues. There were moments when he could be tempted and carried away. And unfortunately, in this particular, on this particular occasion, he carried away other Gentiles with him in this hypocrisy because they saw, well, Peter's not over here eating with these folks over here. Let's go over and eat with Peter. We don't need to be over here eating with those folks. And it was a difficult time, if you think about it, in the first century church because you did have this blending of the Jewish tradition and the Gentiles, and they're trying to make this work and figure out how this is going to work and how it should work. You can understand. I mean, it, it took a little bit to figure it out. We don't too much have that problem ourselves today. Uh, but nonetheless, he was showing bias. He got caught up into this whole thing, uh, did Peter. And the point being, the reason I point those things out about Peter is that Jesus knows Peter. Okay? So he's praying on behalf of Peter. He knows that God has granted this request by the adversary to test Peter, to put him and sift him like wheat. He knows this is going to happen, and he's praying on behalf of Peter because he knows Peter. He's, he lived with the man for three years. I mean, they, they hiked all over the place. He knows. He knew him before he picked him. He knows Peter better than he does anybody else. Actually, let's think about that for just a second. Jesus knows us better than we know ourselves. Amen. Okay, so he made us. 
created us. He knows us since we were in the womb of our mothers. He knows us. And that's a good parallel to draw here. He knew Peter. He knew he needed prayer. He knows us. He knows we need prayer. Okay? So, again, he knows us better than we know ourselves. Because we can all put on a face in front where we portray ourselves one way. But at the end of the day, we can't deceive the Father. We can't deceive Christ. We can't, de- we can't do that with him. We talked about that a little bit this morning in Bible class with uh, David's prayer in Psalm 51. Where you can see very clearly David references this inner this inner man concept of this, this inward being, an inward person that he talks uh, that he talks about there. So, point number one: Why did Jesus pray for Peter? Is that he knew Peter, he understood Peter, he knew all the things that could ensnare and entrap Peter. He knew the difficulties that Peter was going to have to endure. He knew all these things, so he prayed to the Father on behalf of Peter. He also another reason why. And this is one that we're probably going to spend the most time on, and I apologize about that, but this is my wheelhouse I operate in. But he also knows the adversary. And, and I'm going to drive this point home because I hope, I'm hoping that when I get to the very part, last part of it, that I introduce this concept and this idea to you that perhaps you haven't thought about before because I didn't think about it until I went through it and started working on it myself. But he knows the adversary. Jesus, we understand... Has been around since the beginning. In John chapter 1 verses 1 through 5 and also verse 14 we read. In the beginning was the word and the word was God. uh, And the word was, I'm sorry, the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. And that life was the light of, of, of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it. The word became flesh, verse 14, and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. Through him, all things were made. And if it were not for Christ, nothing would have been made. Is the point that John is driving home here. He is the life. Now the reason I bring that up. Is because if Jesus Christ created all things. And if we believe that to be true. What is included in all? Everything. Including who? The adversary. Satan. The serpent. The great dragon. We'll get to those titles here shortly. Um. Job 38, 4 through 7. This is what we read. Where were you? This is God speaking. Where were you when I laid the the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand who marked off its dimensions. Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together... And all, all caps in my notes, all the angels shouted for joy. Now, for those who are into the flat earth stuff, this is a good text if you're into that. Job 38 about foundation stones and immovable stuff. We're not going down that rabbit hole yet. But I want to point out the fact that he says all. 
All the angels were present when the foundation stone was laid, and they were rejoicing. If that's true, then that means the fallen cherub that we're going to talk about was there. And he was rejoicing along with the rest of all. Okay? So, there are some that like to believe that the angelic creations were created at the same time the human beings were created in Genesis chapter 1. However, we got a problem in Job with that because they were there when all the other stuff was created. So, we laid the foundations, the angels were already there, and they're rejoicing about the creation. Point being, we won't debate that timetable. We'll just simply. Stay with our point, which is that he created all things, and all things includes the adversary. So he's known him his whole life. That's a true statement. We use that a lot, known you your whole life. No, he literally did know him his whole life. His whole existence, Jesus has known him. And as we see, that existence goes back to at least Genesis chapter 1, if not before then, depending on where we want to put that, that, that cornerstone down and, and the fact that they're there rejoicing and that sort of thing. So... Jesus has been around a long time. The adversary has been around a long time. Uh, I, I included this one in there because I want to establish who we're talking about because there's different places. Uh, but there's a passage in Revelation that kind of ties it all together. In Revelation 12, 7 through 9, we read there, And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out. The great dragon was cast out. That serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the world. He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. So that's the same guy that has requested to test at Peter. Right? It's Peter like we. Same guy. I mean he's in heaven with angels. Warring against Michael and his angels in, in this big brouhaha. I appreciate that, uh, uh, Brian. If you, that's a little clear for coffee, Brian, but that's okay. I appreciate it. I appreciate it anyway. So, the enemy has been around a really long time as well. Isaiah 14, 12 through 15. How have you fallen from heaven? Morning star, Lucifer, depending on translation, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to the earth. You have... You who once laid low the nations, you said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. Of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly. Remember the mount concept is coming up later. Uh, on the utmost heights of Mount Zaphon. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to the realm of the dead, uh, to the depths of the pit. So I point out the morning star. Reference because what we read in Job 38, the morning stars sang and the angels rejoiced. And so, here in this particular passage in Isaiah 14, we have a reference to the morning star, thus establishing the fact this is the person we're talking, same group, same individual would have been there for the Job 38 stuff. We also learn again, establishing this. I promise I'm going somewhere with this. Um, establishing this concept of the longevity. Jesus created all things. The enemy has been around a really long time. Ezekiel 28. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre 
And say to him, thus says the Lord God, you are the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You are in Eden. Or are we talking about a fleshly king of Tyre at this point? The earthly king of Tyre was not in the Eden. Right? So, <clears throat> he wasn't there. He would have been really, really, really old if he were. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. The sardius, topaz, diamond, beryl, onyx, jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. You were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth amidst in the midst of the fiery stones, you were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. So he's in Eden. Job 38. Hey, the morning stars and angels all rejoice at the laying of the foundation of the earth. Oh, and Zeke. Uh, wait a minute. We were in Ezekiel, right? Yes, Ezekiel 28. Hey, look, you, King of Tyre, this anointed cherub, covering cherub, you were in the garden. The longevity there, the, the history. Was there. Now, I do want to sidetrack here just for a minute. Again, I'm trying to establish a point. Please bear with me on this. We have a very vivid description here in Ezekiel 28 of the adornments of this cherub, this fallen cherub, this covering cherub. I don't know if anybody paid any attention to this, but he went through this whole list of these precious stones like Beryx and Onyx and Turquoise, etc. Where have we seen that before? What? Somebody said something. What about the high priest over Israel? Right? Somebody said that. I heard your mom. I didn't hear what you said. You got to yell at me. Or just throw something up here at me. Okay, so in Ezekiel 28, we're talking about this, uh, this passage. We're talking about these adornments of this covering cherub. Uh, and then in Exodus 28, 15 through 21, we read this. You shall make the breastplate of judgment. And the breastplate of the high priest. Artistically woven according to the workmanship of the ephod, you shall make it of gold, blue, purple, and scarlet thread, and fine woven linen you shall make it. It shall be doubled in a square, a span shall be its length, and a span shall be its width, and you shall put settings of stone in it. Four rows of stones, the first row shall be sardius topaz, an emerald, this shall be the first row. The second row shall be turquoise, a sapphire, and a diamond. The third row, a jacinth, an agate, and an amethyst. And the fourth row, burial, onyx, and jasper. They shall be set in gold settings. And the stones shall have the names of the sons of Israel, twelve according to their names, like the engravings of a signet, each one with its own name. They shall be... Uh, shall be according to the 12 tribes. Now, so we have this cherub in Ezekiel 28, really nice attire, Armani of its day, with some fancy bling on it. So then we have the high priest in Exodus who is wearing a very similar setup of stones. They're not perfect all the way across, uh, but they are very similar. And then in Revelation 21, Verses 19 through 21, we also read this. The foundations of the wall. This is the new Jerusalem. Uh, the foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper. The second, sapphire. The third, chalcedony. The fourth, emerald. The fifth, sardonyx. 
the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, sometimes translated as turquoise, which is the one stone that we know. Well, it's not the only one, but that's a curious stone that makes its way across all of it. The eleventh jacinth and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each individual gate was one pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. So we have a similar description in Revelation of the foundation of the new city of Jerusalem that we see on the breastplate of the high priest in the Old Testament, and is also used to describe the adornments of the cherub, the covering cherub of Ezekiel 28. Okay, we're almost there, I promise. Okay. Now, what do we know about the high priest? And what, did, what was the fun, one of the functions of the high priest? It was very important. He was the only person that was able to go where? Into the most holy place, otherwise known as the Holy of Holies. And he was only allowed to do that one time a year, right? Offer up a sacrifice for himself and offer one up for the people. Now, I find it curious in Ezekiel 28, we have a reference there to the mountain of God. That you, the cherub, were on the holy mountain of God. In Ezekiel 28.16, Therefore I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God. And in Ezekiel 28.18, You defiled your sanctuaries by the multitude of your iniquities. And then in Revelation 21 verses 1 through 3, um, where did it go? Well, we'll just read the whole thing. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth, earth had passed away. Also there was... No more seed. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. So the reason I spend that much time talking about this topic, okay, I know it was long-winded, I apologize about that, but... I'm trying to establish this idea that, one, you have a long period of time. Jesus has been around forever. As long as God has been around, Jesus has been around. Jesus created the adversary. And based upon, now, I'm not saying this was its job function. Based upon the description of the high priesthood, but in the Old Testament, based upon the new city of Jerusalem, and based upon the um, adornments of this cherub in Ezekiel 28, I do personally feel that whatever position he did occupy was a very prominent position that put him in close proximity with God. Okay, I think we can all agree that was probably the case, right? Okay, good. The reason I point all that out, and this is kind of what was striking for me, Remember Matthew chapter 4? What happened there? Do you remember what happened after Jesus was baptized and the Spirit landed upon him that he was led to the wilderness? And he spent how long in the wilderness? And he was tempted by? That wasn't the first time they had met each other. Right? I mean, think about this for a second. This was this, the, the temptation of Jesus... In my opinion, it was very much a personal deal. It was personal. We fool ourselves if we think Satan didn't know who he had there with him at that particular point in time. Particularly in human form where he was created a little lower than the angels. Think about that for a second. Now he's fleshly weak. Right? 
How did it, it, it never occur to me as I worked on this? It's like, oh, wow, that's not a big deal. He thought he had it. Yeah, yeah, you remember back whenever, yeah, you picked, yeah, Michael and all that stuff, and you were just sitting on the throne over there watching whenever I got booted out of the, yeah, now, you're going to get tours now. I mean, that's lame in terminology, I get, okay, so. But I think it's very profound that we understand that. This is a familiarity between Jesus and the adversary that we need to understand. They were very intimate with each other. They knew each other. He created the adversary, and he'd been watching. He saw the, he saw the adversary at his best when he was the most beautiful of creations. When he was doing what he was supposed to do the right way, and he knows him at his worst. The rebellion, being cast down, all of the nations he deceived, and the death, and all of the. Jesus knows the adversary. He knows Peter. He knows the adversary. Now, how does this work to our advantage for our purposes today? He knows the adversary. Well, the reason it works to our advantage is because he knows the adversary. He knows what tactics the adversary uses. He knows how he's going to approach the situation. He knows us and who we are. And he knows what we need to help or to be helped in that scenario. Yeah. Right? Makes sense. One plus one is two, unless you're doing common core math and it's like 12. <laughs> But we don't do that. So, I don't think. Let's not go down that rabbit hole either. Thirdly, and lastly, for our purposes this morning, why is he praying for Peter? He knows Peter. He knows the adversary. He understands the adversary. Um, but also, Jesus is our high priest. He's our high priest. I mean, he, this, this, it's what he does. Now, at the time, you understand, he had not been; a, he, he had not died, and resurrected, and ascended, and, and those types of things. So there was still stuff that had to be done for for Jesus to reach that point. But he is our high priest for our purposes. So, um, uh, Melchizedek, great guy, nine out of eleven times in Hebrews. Um, total in scripture 11 times, 9 times in Hebrews. And Melchizedek is mentioned. Genesis he's mentioned uh, once. Psalms he's mentioned once. Uh, this is what Hebrews says, 5, 9, 5, 9 through 11. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to whom, uh, to all who obey him. Called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, of whom we have much to say and hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. Now, we understand, this is where I was going with that, what I was trying to say, he had not yet been perfected, Jesus had not, when he's having this conversation with Peter. But he is a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. What's the, what's the, what is the significant, why even bother mentioning Melchizedek at all in the New Testament? I mean, I'm sorry, the Old Testament, he's mentioned one time in, in Genesis. Why? What does is, what is mentioning Melchizedek, Melchizedek establish in the Old Testament? That the priesthood existed before the priesthood existed. You can be a priest without being a Levite. Melchizedek proves it. Melchizedek wasn't even an Israelite. We don't know much about Melchizedek, really. Abraham is there. He's a contemporary of Abraham. We don't know his lineage. We don't know what nationality or tribe or whatever he's from. But we know he's a high priest to God. 
And we know he's a king. And it's by that that Jesus has the right to be called a high priest because Jesus is not of the tribe of Levi. He's of the tribe of Judah. Judah. He's of the tribe of Judah. Uh, Matthew 1.16 And Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Um, well, okay, that really didn't include the whole Judah thing. But okay, just read that section right there. It's in there. He was from the tribe of Judah. <clears throat> he is our high priest. Jesus, the reason he prays for, prayed for Peter, the reason he prays for us is he is our advocate. 1 John 2, 1 and 2. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. The uh, advocate in Greek, parakletos, means one who pleads another's cause before a judge, a pleader, Counsel for defense, legal assistant, or advocate. Jesus is our advocate before the Father. Which is really cool because he's sitting right next to the Father. Yeah. Right? So it's not like he has to he's not like he has to be asked to come before the throne, like we see in uh, uh, Job one and two with the angelically created things. No, he's right there. And so if there's an issue, instead of him asking or requesting to approach the father or approach the bench, if you want to use the legal terminology, he just does this and he does this. You know? I'm not sure it's quite that casual, but you know, I like to think it's, it's pretty casual. He just turns right here and says, hey, you know, no, he's lying. You know he's been lying for a long time. You remember that one time whenever we created him? Right? I mean, kind of a deal. He's our advocate, 1 John 2, 1 and 2. Uh, okay, yeah, I'll just throw this out. Uh, paraclea, uh, para, paracleo, root word of paracletos, means called to one's aid. I should have mentioned that before I continued on. Um, the reason he's praying for Peter is Jesus intercedes for us, Romans 8, 34. He who is, <coughs> who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. And the word there is, uh, the Greek word there is hooper, hooper in ish To intercede, to make petition for. Petition in Greek uh, means an interview, a coming together, a conference, a conversation, a petition, a supplication. Um, so he is the one who intercedes for us. He is the one that has this conversation, if you will, with God. He is the one that pleads on our behalf before the Father. He is there for that purpose. That's why he's praying for Peter. That's why it's great for us that we know these things, right? It's great for us that, that Jesus does these things for us. Um, also, Jesus is our mediator. First uh, Timothy 2, 5 and 7. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. For which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am speaking the truth in Christ and not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Um, 
Masitas, a Greek word, an arbitrator, a medium of communication, a go-between. I got that one. I can understand that one. A go-between. Root word, mesos, a reconciler, which is pretty important, actually. So, all this being said, when we think about this story here with Jesus and Peter and this discourse that's going between them, he is saying to Peter, I'm going to pray for you, Peter. The adversary, Satan, devil, serpent of old, great dragon has asked to sift you like wheat. We established, I think, pretty accurately two weeks ago that if Peter can be, if, if it can be requested of Peter, it can be requested of each and every one of us. The Father can say yes to that request. Right? It's a good thing that Jesus knows us better than we know ourselves. Because if that happens, and, and as I said two weeks ago, we just need to expect that it's going to happen. Because the more we try to chase after God and pursue God, the more we try to walk in the light, the more likely it is that we're going to be confronted by something or someone at some point. And so it's a good thing that he knows the adversary I'm sorry, knows us better than we know ourselves um, because we have a bad habit of sometimes lying to ourselves about who we are. It's a good thing he knows the adversary better than we can ever hope to know the adversary because as much as we want to understand and know the adversary, I don't know that we ever will truly because that is a whole different plane that's going. I'm not saying we can't know some of the tactics, but... I just don't think we're not going to know him that well, as intimately as Jesus does, because Jesus created him. He knows all his tactics. He's been seeing him do this for who knows how long, thousands of years. He's been watching Satan work. He knows what he does and how he does it. And it's a good thing for us that he's our high priest. He's our mediator. He's our go-between. He is the the person that, that is between us and God that is our attorney. And I hate to say that because I've known a lot of attorneys and I don't trust them. <laughs> but there's a reason why. They have a reputation for reading. So, But he is the one that is our advocate. He is the one that is sitting right next to the Father. So whenever Satan makes an accusation or whatever, he's right there to say, yeah, no. It's not the way that happened. But he's, I mean, you know, he's there for us. He, he, he's the person that filters that for us. So... Uh, if, if the um, music folks want to come on up, um, I hope that we can take a little bit of time to, to really think about this this morning. Uh, think about this, this temptation of Peter that was requested. Think about this role um, that Jesus occupies as our mediator, as our advocate, uh, because, because it's a good thing. Uh, and I don't know if I can like, portray that better or more accurately. It's a good thing. I mean, he's there to do it, and he knows the enemy better than we know the enemy. And the victory's already won, right? So we can have confidence in that fact. We can have, we can go to him in prayer, knowing that he's right there next to the Father, and he, and he can just turn to him and say, "Hey, yeah, Dad, listen, yeah, this is what's really going on here." That being said, um, 
Um, I want to uh, go ahead and ask the, the deacons to come forward. Um, as we think about what we've talked about the last two weeks, about this, this relationship between Satan and, and, and Jesus and, and Peter here, um, if there's anybody that feels like you need prayer, you need intercession, you need to take your cause to, um, to Christ because you feel like maybe you are being afflicted or somehow targeted, uh, by the adversary um, who has people to help him. Um, we invite you to just go ahead this morning, come forward and uh, pray with the elder.